from the East Coast to the Third Coast, this is Chapter 35 of Autobiography of a Schnook. Hi everybody and uh, welcome to Chapter 35 Autobiography of a Schnook. This is Sean. Well, I think I told you that already, but hey, it doesn't hurt to say it again. What more can I say? Well, for, I know what I can say. First of all, Thank you to all who listened to uh, chapter 34 and offered your condolences. Thank you so much. It means, it really means a lot to me. That was just a weird, difficult time. And anybody who, whoever lost a parent knows that, you know, my dad was part of my life for 46 years and uh, yeah, just all of a sudden he's, he's gone. But um yeah, I mentioned, by the way, previous episode, how my ex sister-in-law, my brother's ex-wife, had basically like been unshy about how she didn't get along with my mom, but she loved my father to pieces. Well, I was happy to see she she uh, showed up to the funeral. That was awesome. I was glad to see her there uh, supporting us and uh, remembering my dad, of course. And uh, oh, man, I got to mention this. <laughs> when Lisa and I and my brother and my mom, when we arrived at the church for the funeral, there were four guys just standing off by the side door, just kind of hanging around chatting. And uh, one of them was a dead ringer for Coach Jankowski. In a previous episode, I talked about my life working for the college football team and what torture it was working with Jankowski. He was a jerk. He was a moron. And I saw this guy who very well could have been Jankowski, didn't say anything to him. It was kind of a little ways away. He might not have even noticed me. And I said, please, dear God, today of all days, don't let me bump into this guy. Ugh. But anyway, I don't know if it was him or not. Uh, no amount of uh, internet stalking could uh, confirm whether or not Jankowski hangs out at St. Joe's. So I don't know. I don't know. What was interesting about the funeral? My dad was a lifelong Catholic, so of course it was a uh, full Catholic mass. And mind you, I'm not the most religious person in the world, and by far not the least either. And I've not been a big fan of uh, the Catholic Church, uh, which is my upbringing, really, for various reasons that I'm not going to get into. But I did find... Things that happened during the Mass, very interesting. I talked in a previous episode how I went through Catholic school, 16 years of Catholic school, actually more than that if you count grad school. I didn't go to a Catholic college because I wanted to go to a Catholic college. I went to a Catholic college because, well, long story short, it was only a mile away and I didn't know really what I wanted to do with college. I had terrible college guidance, but I mentioned how... The first two years of high school, I went to Joliet Catholic High School, which was across the street from me. And I love, as much as I hated school, I loved Catholic High, as we called it. And something that I really liked about it was how the priests and brothers there, that was uh, run by Carmelites, they were very open and, um, at least from my memory, they were open and transparent with us. Like if we questioned things, they would have answers for us. They would have. Maybe not always the most believable things, but at least something that you kind of know where they're coming from. Usually when you're brought up Catholic and you question something, you're either blown off or you're told, oh, you don't question things, just accept them. 
Like, for example, I was a freshman. It was uh, 1988, 1989. And I asked one of the men of cloth over there, hey, it has been scientifically proven that homosexuality is not a choice. If you're gay, you're gay, whether you want to be gay or not. So why is it considered a sin to be gay? Well, the answer I was given, he said, well, you're right. It's not a choice. And no, being gay in and of itself is not considered a sin in the Catholic Church because, again, like you said, it's out of your control. What is considered a sin is homosexual acts because essentially homosexual sex is premarital sex, which is a sin in the Catholic Church. And he added that if gay marriage were ever to be legal, chances are the Catholic Church wouldn't recognize it. So even if gays were to be married, then any sexual activities would also be considered a sin because the Catholic Church does not consider them to be married, which uh, is, of course, the case now that uh, gays can be married to each other. The Catholic Church itself doesn't recognize that marriage. But I found it interesting that I was given some kind of thoughtful answer, whether or not I necessarily agree with it or anybody else necessarily agrees with it. And when we merged with the girls' school across town, St. Francis Academy, and became Joliet Catholic Academy, essentially the nuns who were Franciscan, not Carmelite, took over. And once again, the attitude was very much, well, this is what the church teaches and we're to accept it. Case closed. Well, what was interesting was at the funeral, at my dad's funeral, the priest was explaining a lot of things. And uh, my first thought, and which is likely the reason, the reason the priest was explaining a lot of things was, chances are at a funeral, you're going to have a lot of non-Catholics there because people associate with people of other religions. And sure enough, yeah, there were multiple religions present and probably even lack thereof. So the priest was kind of explaining a few things. One thing that we were always told growing up is that if you have not received your first communion sacrament, when you go to Mass, you do not get in the communion line. That's for people who have had their first communion. Well, thing is, what uh, the priest said at this Mass, at this funeral, was if you're not Catholic but you still want to join us in the communion line, cross your arms when you get to the Eucharistic minister, the priest, whatever, and uh, they'll just give you a little blessing. So I thought that was interesting. It made me think back to St. Pat's grade school. And uh, one of the things about going to Catholic school is that if you're in school during a holy day of obligation, they pull you out to go to Mass. Regardless of whether you're Catholic or not, you go with your class. And poor Mary Heddens. Uh, she was a new student, eighth grade. She transferred from another school, possibly from another state, but she wasn't Catholic. She didn't know any of this stuff, so she just got in line with everybody else, got communion with everybody else, and later on, Sister Loretta, the principal, oh, she reamed Mary, oh my god, poor girl. She didn't know, it wasn't her fault. So it was interesting that we had that kind of uh, more liberal, welcoming attitude at this Mass, and just so many things happened. Like, one thing that I always wondered was, well, we're a Christian religion, we follow the teachings of Christ. And Christ was very humble, very simple. He preached, uh, sell your riches and give the money to the poor and all this. So why, when you go to so many Catholic church buildings, are they so bloody ornate? There's gold all over the place, shiny things. He's a lot of ostentatiousness, if you will. And Father Tim, during my dad's funeral, actually explained that too. 
He said something like, uh, we believe that people learn through all their senses, through sight, through sound, through smell. And that's why when you enter a Catholic church, you see all this fancy stuff over here, all the statues, all the stained glass, because that way you can soak it in through vision. That's why you smell incense, because you can uh, learn through scent. He explained things like that, and it was never explained to me that way before, ever. I was just told that's the way it is because we're showing respect and accept it. But I thought that was interesting. And then something occurred to me. My parents' parish is run by Carmelites, and I wonder if that has anything to do with it. But I thought that was interesting, and I'm going to turn the focus away from <laughs> Catholicism for now. Um, what else is going... Oh, yeah, this is interesting. Here in Chicago, uh, in the previous episode, I mentioned Lakeshore Drive. That's the big expressway that uh, goes from uh, my neighborhood here in uh, the lovely community area of Edgewater all the way down to the far south side of Chicago. Well, there's been a big push to rename Lakeshore Drive to Sable Drive after Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable, who was really the reason that Chicago exists. He's essentially the founder of Chicago. And because he was black, that's another reason. We want to get some more recognition, more diversity, which, you know, it's a good idea. But the thing is, more people were against renaming Lakeshore Drive not just because Lakeshore Drive is such an iconic and well-known name. People across the country, possibly across the world, you say Lakeshore Drive to them, they kind of know what you're talking about. But the concern was that people need to remember DuSable. Well, there's a DuSable Harbor. There's a DuSable School. There's a DuSable Park that's about to open. There was another street named after DuSable. There's a DuSable Museum. And the Michigan Avenue Bridge over the Chicago River downtown was renamed the DuSable Bridge. So that's six things that I could count just off the top of my head named after DuSable. Another concern was that if we're going to rename Lakeshore Drive, that means we're going to have to spend money with uh, new signage on the road. Businesses are going to have to change their addresses and things like that. Well, there was a little bit of a compromise. There was an offer to keep the Lakeshore Drive name, but stick DuSable's name on it. And from what I understand, that's only for outer Lakeshore Drive. There's also an inner Lakeshore Drive that runs in a part of uh, the north side of Chicago that's not expressway, it's local. And I think the agreement was they're going to keep inner Lakeshore Drive named as it is, so that way businesses don't have to change their addresses and things like that. This time, the vote went through. Lakeshore Drive now has DuSable's name in it, but get this. Lakeshore Drive's official name now is Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable Lakeshore Drive. Yeah. Michael Scott's Thunder Mifflin Scranton Meredith Palmer Memorial Celebrity Rabies Awareness Fun Run Race for the Cure. This is Pam. And for some reason, everybody says Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable. It's like you say it French until P-O-I-N-T. Why is suddenly that one word in the middle of this guy's name pronounced English? It's Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable, Lakeshore Drive. Okay, there. Still going to call it Lakeshore Drive, just really out of habit. Uh, I, really, who has time to say Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable, Lakeshore Drive? Du Sable, Lakeshore Drive? Hey, why not? That's probably what a lot of people are going to call it, at least in the media and official business and things like that. 
And I'm not against renaming things if they're being renamed for a good reason. Was this renamed for a good reason? Mm, questionable. I mean, yeah, you want to honor DuSable, but at the same time, you have currently at least five other things named after him in the city of Chicago. Comiskey Park was renamed because they sold the naming rights to U.S. Cellular. And uh, that I'm not so much upset by because number one i really don't care for baseball especially not the white Sox. so i don't have a dog in that race also the comiskey park that was renamed was not the original comiskey park so you're not really renaming history third of all by the time the new comiskey park had been involved comiskey had nothing to do with the white Sox anymore the comiskey family was gone the team had long since been sold Fourth of all, from what I understand from people who know their White Sox history, Comiskey was kind of an a-hole to begin with, so why would we want to honor him? Having said that, I was not going to call that place by its new name for a couple of reasons. Number one, people called it the cell. The cell is something you throw a prisoner in. You really want to call it that. Second of all, do I really want to give free advertisement to a cellular company? Well, I kind of already did in this podcast, but I mentioned it. Third of all, during the time that U.S. Cellular still had the naming rights, they no longer even serviced this state. So what's going on now? Now it's called Guaranteed Rate Field. I don't know what people call it for short. I don't know if they call it the GARE. I've heard it called the GREAT, as in Guaranteed Rate. And the dumbest thing... The logo for guaranteed rate is a down arrow. You really want that for a sports team, folks? Now, when Macy's took over and got rid of Marshall Field and turned Marshall Field into Macy's, yeah, I'm actually going to call that Macy's because they didn't just rename the store. Macy's is a completely different store from Marshall Field. Ergo, I will call it that. Sears Tower, though, I'm not calling it Willis Tower. Simply because it had been Sears Tower since before it was even built. And at this point, if you say Sears Tower, you're not really giving any free advertising to anybody because Sears is pretty much, let's face it, let's be honest, Sears isn't really a thing anymore. But Willis, what is Willis? It's an obscure financial company, some kind of financial firm. I don't know exactly what they do off the top of my head. And they're based out of London. Why are we renaming what was for a long time the world's tallest building, iconic to Chicago, after something based out of London? I don't know. It doesn't make sense. But I'm I'm not going to ramble on any further about that because, dang it, I have a podcast to do. Now, for those of you who uh, listened to the previous episode, this is a reminder that in this next segment coming up, I had actually recorded it for Chapter 34, but because of circumstances, it got pushed back to Chapter 35. So in this next segment, if you hear me mention the previous episode, I meant Chapter 33 two episodes ago. But this time, what I'm going to do is talk about something that was a significant part of my life, and that was the eight years that I lived in New Jersey. So I'm going to give kind of a uh, summary about what that was. There's no way I could really get into great detail about my life in New Jersey in just one podcast episode. So in honor of uh, one of my favorite comedians, George Carlin, I'm going to call this segment, What Was I Doing in New Jersey? Think of all the places people imagine moving to someday. Florida, a very common retirement spot. 
Lots of little kids dream of living there so they can be close to Disney World. Southern California. Warm weather, beaches, Disneyland. Sometimes people want to get a bit more exotic and leave the States, get artsy in Paris, or settle in the south of France. Me? I always wanted to live in Chicago. So it only follows that when I was 23 years old and finally moved out of my parents' house in the Chicago suburbs, that I moved to... New Jersey? Let me give you an overview of New Jersey, the Garden State. If you've never been there, then probably the only thing you know about New Jersey is what you see on TV and in the movies, basically making it appear to be essentially a sixth borough of New York City and loaded with smokestacks and industry. The truth is, that's only a very tiny part of the state, right around um, exits 13 through 16-ish of the New Jersey Turnpike, basically the parts that are near New York City. Believe it or not, most of New Jersey is actually farmlands and beaches. But to help with my overview of New Jersey, I consulted with the nearest source I had, my wife Lisa, who spent the first 35 years of her life at the Jersey Shore. But I asked Lisa what the world needs to know about New Jersey, and what she said I totally agree with. New Jersey, as she says, is loud. That is, the people are loud. New Jersey is brash, but it also has a lot of heart. Lisa says that whenever she meets someone from New Jersey, the first thought that comes to her mind is that there's something fun about this person because New Jerseyans like to have fun. It might not be everybody's idea of fun, but it's fun to them. New Jersey is a very small state, yet with lots to do. Amusement parks, malls. In the wintertime, you can go skiing in the mountains. Yes, there actually is a mountainous region of New Jersey. You're not far from anything you need, but unfortunately, it's also very overcrowded, which might contribute to a lot of stress you feel in that state. That how-you-doing thing stereotypical of New Jersey. Well, let's just say that some stereotypes exist for a reason. There's a radio station called New Jersey 101.5, which is kind of the unofficial state radio station. Talk from Monday morning through Friday evening, and then 60s, 70s, and 80s music from Friday evening through Sunday night. One of the station's promos consisted of a montage of listeners from actual phone calls. They're all saying, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? So many people saying that when they're put on the air. But at one point in the montage, there's a woman who says, hi, how are you? Followed by the sound of crickets chirping, because... Uh, that's not how people talk in New Jersey. Jersey has a lot of celebrities that have called it home. Frank Sinatra, Bruce Springsteen, The Four Seasons, John Bon Jovi, John Travolta, Martha Stewart, James Gandolfini, Jack Nicholson, Jill Biden, Queen Latifah, Halsey, Zach Braff, Paul Simon, well, Paul Simon, the songwriter, not the senator, of course, Kevin Smith, and the list goes on. And there are a lot of things you may associate with New York that are actually in New Jersey, including both the New York Jets and the New York Giants. I said this before, but both Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty are actually within the border of New Jersey. New York's top 40 station, Z100, which claims to broadcast from the top of the Empire State Building, well, technically it does, because that's where the transmitter is located. But you know where the studio is actually located? Secaucus, New Jersey. Heck, I remember one day when I was driving on the New Jersey Turnpike just across the river from New York City, 
I saw, right in the middle of a swamp, a shack with signage attached to it saying, Home of the WMCA Good Guys! Wow, the legendary WMCA out of New York actually is in the freaking Meadowlands! Oh, speaking of the Four Seasons, by the way, if you ever see a stage production of Jersey Boys, there will likely be a sign in the lobby warning you that the show contains, and I quote, authentic profane New Jersey vocabulary. Because, yeah, you're gonna hear a lot of choice words. Lisa, I think, refers to that kind of vocabulary as seasoning, because I guess there's something so awakening about it. It's common for someone to say, hey, you know what the state bird of New Jersey is? And then they show you exactly what that bird is by flipping you the bird. Most likely, someone named Anthony will ask you that question. And why do I say that? Well, because seemingly every Tom, Dick, and Harry in New Jersey is named Anthony. One of the most bizarre experiences I ever had in New Jersey, actually, was when Lisa and I were walking through Asbury Park and some lady was yelling, Anthony! And nobody responded. As for the aforementioned vocabulary, well, there's also some other specialized New Jersey vocabulary. You have Bennies and Shoebies, uh, more about that later. Vineys from the Vinelands, Pineys from the Pine Barrens. Some people are called chosen freeholders. Uh, those, including myself, who don't understand that concept call them frozen cheese holders. There are jug handles. Uh, quick definition of that, well, some roads won't allow you to make left turns, so you actually have to exit those local roads, and those off-ramps are called jug handles. You also have traffic circles. Uh, they exist in other parts of the United States and indeed the world. Hey, look, kids. There's Big Ben and there's Parliament. But under different terms, such as roundabouts and rotaries. In many parts of the United States, they refer to this thing called vinegar and oil. Well, in New Jersey, it's called oil and vinegar. In most places, you have cities, villages, towns. In New Jersey, you have cities, but you also have townships and boroughs. And just to make it more confusing, there's a freehold township and a freehold borough, each adjacent to each other, and each with its own high school. And because New Jersey really doesn't want you to know where the hell you're going, there are multiple municipalities in different parts of the state with the same name. There's a plain field in North Jersey, and there is a plain field in South Jersey. I'm not saying one's plain field and the other is South Plain Field. They are both called Plain Field. And there are at least three different municipalities called Springfield. Where else but New Jersey? Where do you do your grocery shopping in Jersey? Most likely ShopRite. There used to be Food Town as well, but I'm not sure if that still exists. And there was also Pathway Market. And when I first moved there, there were still A&P stores aplenty. When it gets hot outside and you need some refreshment, you go to your local Rita's for Italian ice. Well, except for me. I've never been there, to be honest with you. Be cool, go to Rita's. Be cool, eat a Rita's. Are you having a party and you need to stock up on beer? Then you have to go to a state-licensed liquor store. You cannot get alcoholic drinks at a grocery store or a Walgreens. What if you need to just grab a cup of coffee, a 20-ounce bottle of Coke, or a can of motor oil? Well, you can go to the convenience store called Wawa because there's a Wawa seemingly every eight feet in the state. For the record, Wawa is actually based out of Pennsylvania, but it's a way of life in New Jersey. Oh, and if you want to get gas at Wawa, well, by law, an attendant has to pump it for you. Customers are not allowed to pump gas in the state. 
Some say the law is there to allow for more jobs, as uh, low-paying as they are. Others say the law originated in some violent price wars way, way back in the early days. Personally, I think that rule is in place because, well, let's face it, people are going to blow themselves up if they try to handle that gas. Mind you, my overview of New Jersey might not necessarily be true for everybody. At the very least, it's true for those who mean New York City when they say the city. For those who mean Philadelphia when they say the city, like we're talking Atlantic City area and the South, a lot of what I said might not necessarily be 100% applicable, but much of it still is, especially the part about Wawa. As for where I lived, Ocean Grove. It's a tiny town, about a square mile, far enough north that we picked up all the New York radio stations, yet far enough south that our cable system carried not only the New York stations, but also a couple of the Philadelphia channels. Bordering Ocean Grove to the south is Bradley Beach. Across the northern border is Asbury Park. Well, actually, I take it back. Ocean Grove technically isn't a town per se, but a community that's part of Neptune Township, although it does have its own separate zip code. Oh, and one year when I lived there, it was decided that property assessments would be taken separately in Ocean Grove apart from the rest of Neptune, and as a result, my rent went up 25%. Isn't that lovely? But basically, think of Ocean Grove as the part of Neptune that touches the ocean. It was started as a Methodist camp meeting, and in fact, to this day, the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association runs it, and it's quite a religious place, nicknamed God's Square Mile. The centerpiece of Ocean Grove is the Great Auditorium, a massive wooden venue built for church services, where not only have there been religious sermons and church services, but also performances by Peter, Paul, and Mary, Tony Bennett, and of all people, Bill Cosby. In fact, one time when Tony Bennett performed there, he actually had his band unplug their instruments, and he sang off-mic just to demonstrate the brilliant acoustics of the building. Neptune High School holds its graduations in the Great Auditorium. It's possibly one of the few times you'll go to a public school graduation in the northern half of this country, and you'll hear the phrase, Let us pray, uttered by a student on microphone. If you want to get an idea of what the auditorium looks like, of course you can Google it, but uh, if you've ever been to the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, picture the inside of that, but big enough to seat about 6,500 people, which is slightly more than the population of Ocean Grove entirely. My mother-in-law is convinced that there are two buildings on this planet that you cannot possibly take a bad picture of, Cinderella's Castle in Disney World and the Great Auditorium of Ocean Grove. I moved to Ocean Grove on October 2nd, 1998, the day before my 24th birthday. Originally, I hoped to move there sooner, but it was pretty hard to land a job without interviewing in person. So I gave myself that date as a deadline. Come hell or high water, I'd pack up my car and head east by October 2nd. Why that day, though? Well, quite simply, because I wanted to have a slice of birthday cake on the beach. But really... Why New Jersey? Again, quite simply, because I was in the midst of a long-distance relationship, and my girlfriend, spoiler alert, eventually wife, lived in New Jersey. We agreed that if we really wanted to make it work, one of us had to move. So, let's look at the situation. I was 23 years old, two years out of college, and I was still living with my parents. Lisa had her own apartment two blocks away from the beach and a really good-paying job. Gee, what do you think the wise option would be? 
So Lisa flew out to O'Hare on October 1st, and then we drove to New Jersey the next day. I did not make that decision blindly, by the way. When things were really getting serious, I went to New Jersey for a week in the summer to check things out. Not gonna lie, the thought of living so close to the beach was tempting, but I also got a feel for what I had access to. Could I get those British magazines dedicated to the Amiga computer that I read religiously? Yes, there was a Barnes & Noble nearby. How about buying records? Sure, there was twin records in nearby Neptune City, uh, not part of Neptune, by the way, and record setter in East Brunswick up by Rutgers. Could I fulfill my bootleg CD habit? Sure, there were plenty of places in Greenwich Village that could help me out with that, so a periodic train ride to New York would be in order. Most important, was Ocean Grove in a safe, livable area? Absolutely. Ocean Grove is in Monmouth County, which I believe in 1998 was named by Money Magazine as the best place in the country to live. Monmouth County is about halfway up the state on the northern shore. To answer the uh, obvious question that someone would ask someone who lives in New Jersey, I lived mm, exit 100 off the Garden State Parkway, 7A off the New Jersey Turnpike. Actually, then again, if I'm taking the Turnpike, it's usually heading south. So I'd actually get off an exit 11, which is the Garden State Parkway. So, hmm. Okay here, okay, here you go. If I'm coming from the south heading north, I'm taking 7A. If I'm heading south, then I would get off at uh, exit 11. Then I would take the parkway to exit 100. Seemingly, everywhere in the country, there's a joke about UCLA. For example, in my hometown of Joliet, people referred to Joliet Junior College as UCLA, which stands for, of course, University Closest to Larkin Avenue. Although, technically, St. Francis, which literally is a university, is uh, actually closer to Larkin Avenue. Well, in Monmouth County, UCLA is Brookdale Community College, the university closest to the Lincroft area. Well, in fact, it's actually in Lincroft. You can't get much closer to Lincroft area than that. Uh, by the way, I actually took courses at Brookdale for a few years and uh, earned an associate's in webmaster administration, in fact. And I gotta say, in terms of accredited colleges and universities, I learn more there than I ever learned in any other accredited school. I learned to love living at the Jersey Shore pretty quickly. Our tiny one-bedroom apartment was just a block north of Main Avenue, the shopping drag in Ocean Grove. By the way, when visiting Ocean Grove, please pay attention to that. The main drag is called Main Avenue, not Main Street. Are you listening, Mom? Main Street is the big road you get to when you exit Ocean Grove, and it actually runs perpendicular to Main Avenue, so Main Avenue and Main Street intersect. If you tell someone you want to go to Main Street, they'll think you're talking about going to Asbury Park. But anyway, within walking distance from home, we had a post office, banks, restaurants, a laundromat, a small grocery store that we really rarely ever patronized, a video store, and several miscellaneous shops, uh, albeit most of which catered to skinny middle-aged women. Except for the banks, none of the businesses are chains. They're all indie. Uh, sorry, um, if you're a Starbucks fan, in Ocean Grove you have to settle for Odyssey Coffee. Two blocks east is the Atlantic Ocean, whose salty breezes were a very common scent year-round. From more than one person, though, I've heard this little saying. You know what we used to call Ocean Grove when I was a little girl? Ocean Grave. Because for a while, Ocean Grove wasn't a desirable place. 
until probably the late 80s or early 90s, there were halfway houses in town. Well, those halfway houses were ordered to get out when a resident of one of said halfway houses went up to a little kid who was on a class field trip and punched her in the face. Ever since, Ocean Grove has only been improving, and by the time I moved there, it was one of those places you could go for a walk by yourself any time of day or night, and you'd be perfectly safe. To this day, though, there are blue laws forbidding the sale of alcohol in Ocean Grove, or OG as many call it, but it's perfectly legal to possess and consume it there. If you don't like that law, you can get booze from a liquor store practically across the street from OG's border. Things were even stricter before. Until 1981, you could not have a car in Ocean Grove on Sundays, so you had to park your car in Bradley Beach, Asbury Park, another part of Neptune, or in your garage if you were one of the very few people in town who had a garage. You had to get your car out of sight before you went to bed on Saturday night. Twice a year, the Saturday after Memorial Day and the Saturday after Labor Day, there's a massive flea market on Ocean Pathway. Ocean Pathway, there's a, a split street. On one side, Ocean Pathway goes east. The other side, Ocean Pathway goes west. And in between those two streets, there's a huge park that leads up to the auditorium. And in that park is where the flea market happens. Every Christmas season, there's a living nativity with a little presentation in the auditorium. Think a Charlie Brown Christmas. <laughs> and on Christmas Eve, Santa arrives in a fire truck. Speaking of fire trucks, by the way, Ocean Grove, again, it's only a square mile, but it has no fewer than five fire departments. The reason for that is because there's always an elevated danger of fire because all the houses and other buildings are so freaking close together. And if there's a fire, you got to put that thing out immediately before it spreads. In fact, usually the first thing the fire department does is hose down adjacent buildings to reduce the chances of the fire spreading. And all of the houses are made of wood. The Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association is in charge of approving home construction, reconstruction, and improvements. They have final say in even what color you can paint your house. If you want to put siding up, they will plead with you to not put up siding. They'll even offer to help you paint your house if it means not putting up siding. Basically, the deal is they want to preserve Ocean Grove's Victorian heritage. Also, by the way, houses cannot obstruct views of the ocean, so the closer a house is to Ocean Avenue, the further back from the street it is. Thankfully, between the time I left Sharp Electronics in Romeoville, Illinois, to the time I eventually landed a full-time job in New Jersey, only ten days had passed. I found work as an editor at TFH Publications, the world's largest animal book publishing company, and TFH is in Neptune. Uh, that stands for Tropical Fish Hobbyist, by the way, which is the company's flagship publication. It was not a high-paying job by any means, but it paid my bills and it was close to home, close enough that I could actually go home during my lunch break. There was a lot to like about living at the shore. If we needed to do some big-time shopping, there was plenty up and down State Route 35, including Mammoth Mall a few miles north in Eatontown. A few miles north of Eatontown is Red Bank, which, at least in the late 90s, had a reputation for being the hippest place at the shore. I loved Red Bank. There was Jack's Music Shop to fulfill my musical needs, Mammoth Music for musical instruments, the Broadway Diner for amazing comfort foods, and of course, the famous Prowns, a variety store whose slogan was, Prowns has everything! There were plenty of great eateries and it was just an overall cool place to visit. 
I loved Red Bank so much that when I got fed up with TFH, I targeted Red Bank in my job search and landed a position at a PR firm there. About 45 minutes upstate Route 18 is New Brunswick, and therefore Lisa's beloved alma mater, Rutgers University. I always loved going to New Brunswick. I also loved going to the other major university town, Princeton, and in fact my next job in New Jersey was actually in Princeton. Take a trip south down 35 and you'll get to Seaside Heights. Back when I first moved there, Seaside was loaded with boardwalk amusements, ticket redemption casinos, pizza joints, Coors frozen custard stands, amusement park rides, a small water park, and various tiny shops. Gas was relatively cheap too, definitely cheaper than in Illinois at the time. In fact, when I moved there, the low prices made me feel so cocky that I was actually filling my car with premium just because I could. And again, this was full service. I think the reason the gas was so cheap is that the refineries are right up the turnpike and ergo it's easy to transport the fuel from the refineries down to the stations. Nowadays, the gas isn't really cheaper out there anymore because a couple of years ago the governor passed a pretty hefty hike on gas taxes. Although New Jersey is really due east of Chicago, which has some pretty brutal winters, the winters out there at the shore were pretty mellow. If the temperature dropped to, say, 26 degrees Fahrenheit, the weather reporters in New York and Philadelphia would have a panic attack. Otherwise, it's not much different from where I currently live. It's cold in the winter, nice in the fall, hot in the summer, and kind of drippy in the spring. Beaches are open from Memorial Day weekend through the weekend after Labor Day, and the ocean water is remarkably clean. Lisa once said she got emotional when she could see to the bottom in the water because in the 80s that was not possible due to pollution. It was so bad at some point that medical waste was actually washing up on the shore, but things seriously cleaned up since then. After a couple of years, we got a notice that the owner of our building was selling the building and turning it into a single-family house, so we had to move and we found ourselves in a pretty sizable two-bedroom apartment with one-and-a-half bathrooms just a few blocks north of our first apartment and ergo still two blocks from the beach. It was the entire first floor of a house. We were briefly considering buying a house until we learned a harsh reality. It's incredibly expensive to buy anywhere in New Jersey, especially Ocean Grove. It was doable before the improvements that were made in the 90s, but not now. Also in Ocean Grove, you technically cannot own property. What you do is you lease it from the Camp Meeting Association for 99 years. To this day, we still rent, so the more we think about buying a house, the more we like the idea of renting and ergo having a landlord take care of things when they go wrong. Now, I actually was happy living in New Jersey for two, maybe three years. It was getting kind of annoying. Plus, the times I'd return to the Chicago area to visit my family twice a year, I found myself wishing more and more that I lived in Chicago. The cons of living in New Jersey were starting to outweigh the pros. What were those cons? Oh, keep listening, my friends, and I'll tell you. For one thing, Summers were kind of a curse. Yeah, we had a beach two blocks away. Here's the thing, though. During the season, you actually have to pay to access most beaches in New Jersey. That's because the state and local taxes do not cover beach maintenance. So the way they do things there is, rather than add to the state or local taxes, they simply make only those who use the beach pay for it. You pay for a beach admission, and they give you a badge that you have to pin onto whatever you're wearing. Most towns have daily, weekly, and seasonal badges, 
and you have to wear your beach badge at all times when you're on the beach during the season. Lately, Ocean Grove has also been selling badges according to gender, in an obvious attempt to reduce the chance that someone's just going to lend their badge to somebody else to save money. Oh, and not only did we have to deal with paying extra to go to the beach, but we also had to deal with... The Bennies. What are Bennies? If you have to ask, you obviously never spent any time in New Jersey, or at least at the shore in the summer. Bennies are the tourists from North Jersey and New York who invade the Jersey Shore under the impression that laws do not apply to them because they're on vacation. These are the people who leave dirty diapers on the beach, or when they go to a restaurant at the shore and they're told there's a 20-minute wait, they'll start screaming at 19 minutes and 59 seconds if a table isn't ready. The term Benny is not a good thing. Where did that term come from? Well, Lisa told me that if I love her, I will not say that the term Benny, which dates back to the 1800s if not earlier, comes from an acronym for Bayonne, Elizabeth, Newark, and New York. One of the traditional stories is that luggage on trains would be tagged either B-N-E-N-Y or B-E-N-N-Y to abbreviate those stops on the way to the shore. But here's the thing. There was never in history a train line that had all those towns as stops. Lisa insists that the definition of Benny as an abbreviation of Bayonne Elizabeth Newark, New York is a backronym. The editor at TFH told me, well, I always thought it was because they all seemed to be named Benny. Hey, Benny, you forgot the mustard! My friend Sibley, whom I actually knew from an online discussion forum, and then when I moved to Ocean Grove, found out he lived only a couple of blocks away. He told me that he would never, ever use the term Benny, because according to his research, the term may have anti-Jewish origins, something about tribes of Benjamin or something, so he doesn't want to use a potential slur. When I first heard Lisa mention the term Benny, I thought it was referring to Benzedrine, as in these people must be on Benzedrine or something, and she said, actually, that's probably not far from the truth. But the fact is, no matter what anybody tells you, nobody definitively knows the origin of that term. But if somebody calls you a Benny, it is not good-natured ribbing. The landlady who owned the house we moved into lived in Sparta, which is, as Lisa would say, way the hell up north in New Jersey. And she told us, I'm a Benny. Lisa said, no, the fact that you call yourself a Benny tells me that you're too respectful to ever be a Benny. I think it was another tenant where we lived when I first moved to New Jersey who told us this Benny story I'm about to share with you. And it's very typical. Our neighbor was in Belmar, stopped at a drawbridge that was up so that a boat could pass. The person driving the car behind her with uh, New York license plates honked his horn. Well, what was she supposed to do? The bridge was up. The guy kept honking his horn, and at some point the exasperated New Yorker got out of his car, came over to our neighbor's car, and he said to her, Why aren't you moving? She said, Sir, the bridge is up. Where am I supposed to go? He said, There's still some space in front of you. You can move up. Yeah. Fun fact, by the way, the term Benny applies to the North Jersey coast, so basically from where New York City is reachable within an hour or so. The South Coast, like, say, Atlantic City, Cape May, Wildwood, that half of the state, they get shoobies. Shoobies is a traditional term for tourists from the Philadelphia area, and that term came about because back in the old days, they'd pack their lunches in shoeboxes. And partially because of the bennies, summers were a curse because if you lived at the shore, 
you could end up being a prisoner in your own home. You'd better pray that you didn't have to drive somewhere because when you got back home, chances are you would not have anywhere to park. In Ocean Grove especially, that was a problem because, again, very few people had driveways. It was all street parking. None of it was metered and none of it was zoned, so parking was up for grabs except for a few handicapped spots. Also at the shore, you have easy access to two major cities. Uh, unfortunately, they're New York and Philadelphia. I ranted about my dislike for these towns before, so I'll try not to do so again here. If you want to go to Philadelphia, you kind of have to drive from the shore because there's no reasonable mass transit between the shore and Philly. But New York, you could just walk over to Asbury Park and hop a New Jersey transit train. Or you can even stay in Ocean Grove and take an Academy bus to New York. Never done that. Hmm. Regarding Philadelphia, um, to be fair, I, I think I mentioned this before, but I've only been to Center City and only a few times. Uh, once for a concert, once to make a delivery for work, and a few other times to get to the airport. Well, the airport's not in Center City, but close enough. I hated how Philadelphia was dirty like New York City, and I hated even more how, well, the signage was terrible. I don't know how things are now, but when I lived in Jersey, the Philadelphia area was extremely poorly signed. You know that big traffic circle in front of the art museum, you know, where the end of the famous Rocky Run is? The exits on that circle were not labeled. But I found that when I was in Philadelphia, the best strategy for leaving was just keep driving east and eventually I'd end up in New Jersey. And speaking of which, one thing I did like about New Jersey was that in situations like that where I didn't know where the hell I was, all I had to do was keep on driving, just keep on going straight, follow the road, and eventually I would end up on a road I was familiar with before too long. During the years I lived in New Jersey, it was before smartphones, and I didn't have anything else for a GPS, so I didn't have live turn-by-turn -turn directions to guide me. I had to print out directions from MapQuest, which weren't always correct. But I found that any time I got lost in Jersey, all I had to do was just keep on going. One time when I did that, I found myself on Route 33, which if you follow all the way east, you end up in Ocean Grove. A problem with living in Ocean Grove, by the way, is that a short walk to the north lands you in Asbury Park. Now, back when I lived in OG, Asbury Park was a sad, tragic dump. It used to be a major vacation destination and for years had a very active boardwalk, complete with boardwalk amusements. Due to various circumstances, though, such as a race riot that broke out in 1970 and some corrupt politics, including Asbury Park's mayor getting caught in a drug deal with an undercover cop, Asbury Park went downhill big time, and many of the buildings on and along the boardwalk sat abandoned for years. One person owned those buildings, and he hung on to them as a tax write-off. People offered to fix up the buildings for free in hopes to revitalize Asbury Park, but the owner refused. Eventually, some of them, including the famous Palace Amusements, had to be torn down, and that was sad. If you're in or around Asbury Park, you will see the face of Tilly, the palace's mascot, all over the place. Palace Amusements had two Tilly faces on the outer wall and the building was aligned so that there was a straight line between the Tilly faces and a similar face on a building way off in Coney Island. My half-assed research fails me as to what building that was, though, unfortunately. It was seriously sad to live in Ocean Grove and look north to Asbury Park and see the ruins. In fact, 
Bruce Springsteen's song, My City of Ruins, was about Asbury Park. The boarded up windows, the empty streets, and my brother's down on his knees. My city of ruins. Speaking of Bruce Springsteen, that was the real reason living next door to Asbury Park counts as a con. In New Jersey, especially Monmouth County, Bruce Springsteen is ubiquitous. I was so sick of hearing Bruce this, Bruce that. Every time Born to Run was played on the radio or something else in a store, when he got to that part about Highway 9, there'd be somebody who'd say, See, he said Highway 9! He's singing about Jersey! The only thought that came to mind was that people made a big deal about that line because it was the only lyric in the song that was actually intelligible. And, uh, sorry to tell you people, but Highway 9 is a U.S. highway, and that song could have been about New York, New Jersey, or Delaware. Well, truth be told, Highway 9 does run right through Springsteen's hometown of Freehold. And with the context of the lyrics, the song is most likely about driving from Freehold to Asbury Park. But anyway, I got so sick of hearing about Bruce Springsteen. And just about everybody from New Jersey claims to have met or seen Bruce Springsteen in person because he'd just be out and about like anybody else. And the truth is, I believe everybody, too. I I believe them. He also came across as an attention seeker. It was a regular occurrence to hear of him suddenly jumping on stage at someone's show at the Garden State Arts Center in Holmdel or at the Stone Pony in Asbury Park. News stories would say, and Bruce Springsteen made a surprise appearance in such and such a show. Surprise? Really? It happened all the time. There was no surprise about it. I mentioned the Broadway Diner and Red Bank in both this and the previous episode. Well, one day when I was at work at my PR job in Red Bank, my boss and her husband went to lunch there. When they came back, they said they saw Bruce there with his five-year-old son. They said the waitress told them that Bruce asked her if she'd like an autograph, to which she said, no. My mother-in-law worked for a doctor in Red Bank, and one of the patients? Bruce's mom. He would usually be the one bringing her to her appointments, and they'd escort them through a back entrance so as not to attract attention. One of the ways I was constantly exposed to Bruce Springsteen was via New Jersey 101.5. Listen to that station on the weekend, and you're guaranteed to hear plenty of Bruce. Born to Run, 10th Avenue Freeze Out, Hungry Heart, Born in the USA, Glory Days. Especially if Big Joe Henry was on the air. He's still on that station, too playing the same damn songs every time, telling the same old tired jokes. Turn on Big Joe Henry on the weekends, and I promise you, you're going to hear You're the First, the Last, My Everything, Walking on Sunshine, right back where we started from, possibly multiple times each. Actually, radio out there overall was kind of boring. The only stations I could tolerate were New Jersey 101.5 when Joe Henry wasn't on, and occasionally the classic rock station out of New York. Everything else was either too serious, too boring, too country, or any combination of those three. And for some inexplicable reasons, most stations, at least FM stations in New Jersey, have constant reverb on the microphones. Is it still 1964 over there or something? Oh, Springsteen, by the way, was not the only ubiquitous Jersey Shore celebrity. John Bon Jovi was probably the second most heard of person out there, But I didn't mind that so much because usually when you heard about him, it was about something really, really good, like charity or some other kind of helpfulness. 
Oh, speaking of which, um, Lisa's first ever public school teaching job was at Sayreville War Memorial High School. What? You don't remember the Sayreville War? Well, that's why there's a high school named after it, so you will remember it. But anyway, that's where John Bon Jovi and his bandmate Richie Sambora went to high school. Lisa taught there for a year before they invited her to uh, not return for the next school year, which uh, was fine by us because, number one, she hated that job, and number two, we were moving to Chicago anyway. But anyway, getting back to Sayreville, John Bon Jovi supports the school band there every year. The story Lisa was told was that he first contacted the administration and offered a large donation to be used for band instruments and uniforms and other equipment. Of course, the administration jumped at the offer, uh, until Bon Jovi told them that he expected to get receipts proving that the money was spent on band equipment, at which point he was told, uh, actually, you know what, thanks for the offer, but never mind, we're good, we're good. Hmm. <laughs> so instead, every year, Bon Jovi reaches out to the band teacher personally and says, what do you guys need this year? He also runs a restaurant in Red Bank called Soul Kitchen. I believe the way it works over there is you get a three-course meal, and you pay whatever you feel your food was worth, and the money goes to take care of the poor. If you can't afford to pay, then you can do volunteer work in exchange. Well, okay, I did get a little bit tired of hearing about Bon Jovi, but not nearly as much as I was tired of hearing about The Boss. Something that became apparent to me after a few years, jobs at the shore that can pay the bills were few and far between. I had tried for years to get some kind of job in software development or IT, but to no avail. That was one of the reasons I ended up hating my job at the PR firm. All of our clients were high-tech clients, and when I'd support them at trade shows, the thought kept going through my head that I should be doing what they're doing. Problem, though. All those companies were pretty far north in the state. The commute would absolutely suck, and no way in hell did we want to move to North Jersey. That region where all the tech jobs were was referred to as the Silicon Turnpike or Silicon Parkway. I don't know if those nicknames ever actually stuck. They might not exist anymore, but I'm not sure. People used those terms because you had to travel pretty far up north on the New Jersey Turnpike or the Garden State Parkway to get there. Speaking of which, if you're not from Jersey, you've probably heard stand-up comedians make wisecracks about the toll roads in New Jersey. Truth is, there are only three in the state— the New Jersey Turnpike, the Garden State Parkway, and the Atlantic City Expressway. George Carlin once talked about how by the time he left New Jersey to get to Pennsylvania, he'd need a break job because of all the stopping at the toll booths. Given that he was addressing a North Jersey crowd, he had to have been talking about either the Parkway or the Turnpike, and the Parkway doesn't even go to Pennsylvania, the Turnpike does. Back in the late 80s or early 90s when Carlin made that claim, your trip on the turnpike would have exactly two tollbooth stops, one to get a ticket at your entry point, and another when you exit and you pay your toll. To be fair, there is a stretch of the parkway pretty far up north in the state in which there are some tollbooths spaced pretty freakishly close together. If you have easy pass, I suppose that's not too much of a problem, though. Even if it weren't for the distance from Ocean Grove to the Silicon whatever, the commute would still be a nightmare because the major highways in Jersey are traffic nightmares. Some reports claim that the Chicago area has the worst traffic. Please. It has nothing on the backups in New Jersey, such to the point that you could turn your car off for several minutes at a time. I'd say traffic problems in New Jersey are perhaps second to those in California. 
On top of that, there are a lot, a lot of terrible drivers in New Jersey, which is why it's so freaking expensive to insure your car there. During the two years I worked in Princeton, I was rear-ended on my way to work no fewer than five times. Five times! Thankfully, each time I was okay, and there was no obvious damage to the car, but still, it was ridiculous. Oh, speaking of insurance, it was expensive as all get out, unless you were fortunate enough to qualify to be insured by New Jersey manufacturers, often called NJM. You had to either work at a company associated with NJM, which TFH was, or have someone in your immediate family who was insured by NJM. And the cool thing is, once you were insured by them, you're in it for life. Of course, being a Chicagoan now, I cannot have them as my insurer, but if for God knows what reason I move back to New Jersey, they will insure me again because they once had me as a customer. But NJM had incredibly low rates, and I'd never seen rates that low in my life. And the cool thing is you'd get billed only nine months out of the year for full 12-month coverage. Unfortunately, I did have to file claims on two separate occasions, but NJM was extremely helpful. The turnaround time was incredibly fast, and never once did my insurance go up. <sighs> my current insurance, though? Jeez, just one time somebody knocked the mirror off my rental car, and I'm still paying for it three years later. Thanks. Anyway, uh, the fact is, I wanted to get out of Jersey. Uh, truth is, so did seemingly everybody else. By the time I was packing up to move to Chicago, there was an exodus out of the state because it was getting so expensive. New Jerseyans were leaving in droves, mostly to go to Pennsylvania. I just hope for their sake, Pennsylvania didn't have a commuter tax. Oh, a commuter tax? You don't know what that is? Well, let me explain it to you the best way I know how. A lot of New Jerseyans work in New York City. I mean, why not? It's the largest city in America, and there are plenty of decent jobs to be had, and the train commute is easy like Sunday morning. Those people have to pay state income taxes for both New Jersey and New York, and the taxation without representation argument gets them nowhere. During the eight years I lived in New Jersey, I had to put up with the pizza. Pizza in New York and New Jersey sucks. I don't care what anybody says, it is awful. There's no body to that crap, and it droops severely. I've already ranted about that in a prior episode, so I'll end my complaints there, but I was really getting sick of the lame-ass pizza out there. When I first moved to Jersey, there was a really good pizza joint in Neptune called Berardi's, and it had been there forever. We'd order from them semi-frequently. Unfortunately, Berardi retired and sold the business. The new management rechristened it Louis D's and introduced the lame sucky pizza. Ocean Grove had a pizza shop that made really amazing personal-sized pizzas, but for whatever reason, Lisa didn't like that place. But I had to get out of New Jersey and go where there's good pizza. Oh, and remember how I said that the winters in New Jersey are not as extreme as they are in the Chicago area? That could be a good thing and a bad thing. The thing is, I love snow. So I was thrilled in 2003 when we literally got 27 inches of snow overnight. Especially because in 2001 and 2002, we got zero snow. That was depressing. Even in mellow winters here in Chicago, we're guaranteed at least some snow every year. Even nowadays, when I go back to New Jersey at least once a year, well, except for 2020, thank you, pandemic, a lot of things that I loved about it aren't there anymore. In the previous episode, I talked about Nagels and how Stuff Your Face no longer has the shrimp bully. But also, there's just some things that aren't what they once were. 
Red Bank went from being hip to just plain pretentious, and Prowns is gone, at least as we know it. Seaside Heights isn't what it once was because, well, thanks to climate change, hurricanes are becoming semi-frequent in Jersey. They were almost unheard of when I lived there. Thanks in part to Hurricane Sandy, a good chunk of the boardwalk in Seaside was destroyed. You may remember seeing the news stories with a roller coaster in the water. Sadly, sometime after Hurricane Sandy, a huge fire destroyed another big portion of the Seaside Boardwalk. Another sad thing that makes me thank God I don't live in Ocean Grove anymore? Fires. There have been several mysterious fires that happened since we moved out, including at our friend Norman's house. My mother-in-law knew Norman for a long time, well still does actually, <laughs> and he's been a friend of their family for years. Well, he knew about the fire dangers in Ocean Grove, so he kept an overnight bag right next to his bed in case a fire ever happened, and he knew he could just grab it and get the hell out, and unfortunately, that actually happened once, not too long ago. His house burned to the ground, and he lived just a few doors away from us, too. A small string of businesses on Main Avenue. Huge fire. One of the many bed and breakfasts in Ocean Grove burnt to a crisp overnight. After at least one of those fires, I would have insisted to Lisa that we get the hell out of Ocean Grove. Lisa told me, well, that's assuming I wouldn't have told you first. And it's sad going back to Jersey, knowing that some of the reason you wanted to be there isn't there anymore. But is New Jersey a bad place? Honestly, no. It's just not a place for me. After a few years, I started to feel terribly out of place, as if I were a guest who overstayed his welcome. Interestingly, people were surprised when I told them I was from the Chicago area. I guess I lost my accent, I don't know. But New Jersey just wasn't home. Also, I was pretty far away from family. And when my father retired, I heard about a surprise party they threw for him at work. My mom, my brother, and my niece were all there. But I wasn't. I didn't even know they were doing that for him. All I could think is how I should have been there, and how I could have easily been there if I lived closer. I mentioned in an earlier episode that Lisa loved Chicago, and she hoped to move there someday. What I did not know was that pretty much all her life, Lisa wanted to leave New Jersey because she knew there were better places out there. One night she sat me down and said that we'd been talking about moving to Chicago someday for years, but we'd done nothing to make it happen. She said, and I quote, It's time to shit or get off the pot. I told her I'd figure it out somehow. The very next day, an email went out from company headquarters saying there was a job opening in Chicago, and well, there you go. I often tell Lisa that she should be proud to be from New Jersey, and she is. There's a special character about that place and its people. When Lisa happens upon someone from New Jersey out here, it takes her a maximum of five minutes to get involved in a deep conversation with some common ground. If nothing else, that topic would be ShopRite. And truth be told, there's still some things I look forward to when I go back there. Jack's Music Shop and Mammoth Music in particular is still there, and a new favorite haunt opened in Red Bank about ten years ago. Yestercade's a really cool place to play classic arcade video games. Nerd alert! Outside of Red Bank, the Princeton Record Exchange is alive and kicking near the university and is virtually unchanged since I lived in Jersey. And I love visiting New Brunswick. That is one of the coolest places you can be in that state. And of course, there's the Atlantic Ocean. Asbury Park has been going through kind of a renaissance. The year before we moved to Chicago... We decided just for the heck of it to take a walk up the boardwalk to Asbury Park, and we found that a few new businesses had moved in. There were people actually out on the boardwalk walking around. That was unheard of before then. 
And then over that next year, the Asbury Park boardwalk became quite busy. Lisa said that while things looked hopeful, she wasn't going to exhale unless a miniature golf course opened there. As a child, she used to love playing mini-golf in Asbury Park. And wouldn't you know it, one time when we visited in the summer, we found that a miniature golf course had just opened on the boardwalk. Lisa got a little emotional over that. Also, shortly after we moved out, Silverball, a vintage pinball arcade, opened up on the northern end of the boardwalk. A pinball arcade that also had some vintage 80s arcade games. If that place had been open when we lived there, at least half my salary would have gone to that joint. Every time I'm at the shore, I do try to visit Silverball. Asbury Park is back in business. Well, at least the more, hmm, let's just say affluent parts are back. Uh, it would be nice if the town did something to help out the poorer parts of town. But having said that, the last time we were in Asbury Park, as I walked up and down the boardwalk and saw all the mom-and-pop shops and the arts and culture that continued to pop up, I couldn't help but think that people who live there, or are otherwise part of that culture, have a lot to be proud of. And the man who made Asbury Park a significant music scene, Bruce Springsteen. Recently, when I was talking to Lisa about how sick I got of hearing about him, Lisa said, You think you had it bad? You only had to put up with that for eight years. I had to put up with it for 35. I guess it's true that absence makes the heart grow fonder. Since I moved to Chicago, I've learned to appreciate Springsteen. I learned that there was a lot more to him than met the eye, and that he really does seem to be a pretty cool, respectful, and surprisingly humble guy. I watched and highly enjoyed a broadcast of his one-man show on Broadway, and I do admit, when I still lived in Jersey, one of my coworkers popped the album The Rising into the office CD player, and I really enjoyed it. Moving to Chicago is one of the best things that ever happened to the two of us. Our quality of life significantly improved. There's so much more here for us to do. Case in point, I don't see an Old Town School folk music anywhere at the Jersey Shore, or shockingly, anywhere else in the country. We traded in our cars, and we are now a single-car couple. Now we have no idea how we ever got by having to deal with two cars. We found ourselves traveling a lot more. When we lived in New Jersey, really the only times we ever traveled were to visit my family. Seldom did we go on an actual just getaway trip, despite living an hour away from a major international airport. Even the public library. Lisa seldom ever used a library during her 35 years in Jersey. And I don't blame her, the Neptune Library, ugh. But we both use the Chicago Public Library all the time because it actually has a selection and services. And after moving to Chicago, we got to watch David Letterman an hour earlier. And Chicagoans, say what you will about how radio has gone downhill here. It's still infinitely better than what I ever had back in Jersey. Do I regret spending eight years of my life in New Jersey? Absolutely not, even though for at least five of those years I wished I hadn't. It was a means to an end. I got to see a part of the country that wasn't the Midwest for a change. Eh, summer road trips to Florida with the parents don't count. I've been lucky in my life to have met some amazing people. Well, that includes in New Jersey. There are a lot of people out there in the Garden State whom I'm thankful that I got to know. It's nice to know that those people, and some of the places I mentioned before, are still there for me when I go back every year.
By the way, friends, uh, I was mispronouncing the name of one of the towns in New Jersey. Don't tell Lisa because she gets really uptight about mispronunciation, especially Massachusetts, where her father was from. Uh, you don't want to say Worcester because it's Worcester. You don't want to say Leominster because it's Leminster. Well, something that Lisa told me years ago is that the proper pronunciation of the town that's spelled B-A-Y-O-N-N-E is bay own So, I apologize, Jersey, that's exactly how it's supposed to be pronounced. But anyway, that was basically my East Coast life. So, for music for schnooks, I'm going to talk about something related to the Third Coast, where I live, that is an example of what I call blown perfection. Let me start by asking you a trivia question. Don't answer it, though, at least out loud, because, well, uh, I can't hear you. What hit rock and roll album that was released in England in the 60s contains the following line? I am he, as you are he, as you are me, and we are all together. Now, let's give your brain time to ponder that. Uh, well, if you already know the answer, then obviously you don't need the time, but I wanted to talk about something that crossed my mind about a year or so ago. As you already know, if you're a frequent listener of Autobiography of a Schnook, I love listening to records. I'm not one of those people who close-mindedly says that vinyl is the best audio format, period, partly because I do not believe that, but I still love listening to records. I try to ensure that I have a copy of all of my favorite albums on vinyl. Well, sometime before or early on in the pandemic, it occurred to me that I don't have a copy of Chicago's debut album, the two-disc Chicago Transit Authority. In fact, technically, that was a self-titled album because at the time, Chicago Transit Authority was the band's name, until the actual transit agency of the same name threatened legal action. By the way, some more trivia. The band Chicago's original name? It was not Chicago Transit Authority, but The Big Thing. That's what the band was called upon its founding in 1967. I went to Lori's Planet of Sound, one of my favorite record stores here on the north side of Chicago. Chicago Transit Authority was a popular album, of course, so I was pretty sure Lori's would have a copy on vinyl, and sure enough, yep, I inspected the vinyl, and it looked good enough for me, so I bought it. If I'm not mistaken, it was a Friday when I first played it, possibly even the very next day after I bought it. I usually only work half days on Fridays, so after I clocked out at 1 o'clock, I played that album. It sounded like it had definitely had its share of spins on turntables in the past, but still, I was glad to have it, and I was digging it for sure. Even though I had heard the album several times on CD, I took a look at the song lineup. Side 1 Alone. Just three songs, but they're pretty long. Introduction a song written by Terry Kath to serve literally as the band's introduction when they take the stage. Even these days, if you go to a Chicago concert, the show will indeed open with the song Introduction, and it is a killer opener. Next up, does anybody really know what time it is? Oh, such a great classic. And Beginnings. Wow, 100% from start to finish, an amazing lineup. Just 
perfect. That lineup never fails to stun me. Even typing it in when I was prepping my notes for this episode, I just had to take a moment to take a deep breath in awe of those three songs, right in a row, kicking off the album. Now, about those three tracks, introduction, there is no better way to start off a band's recording career, let alone an album. So catchy. Now, I recently heard that the tune Home to Emily, which you probably know as the theme from the Bob Newhart show, written by Lorenzo and Henrietta Music, that theme tune was meant to sound as if it were performed by Chicago, what with its brassiness and fast-paced rhythm, and of course, Bob Newhart's Chicago Roots and the band Chicago's Chicago Roots, even though they had uh, already moved to L.A. at the time. Now, the similarity between that theme music and the band Chicago is especially evident in the earlier seasons of the Bob Newhart show. I have a feeling that the song Introduction was the inspiration. Here, check it out. Here's a small sample of Introduction. Here's a bit of Home to Emily, specifically the version used in the first two or three seasons of the Bob Newhart show. Do you hear that similarity? As for the next track, does anybody really know what time it is? Obviously, such a classic. Listen to that intro and how the time signature keeps changing. Oh, wait, um, I should be more specific. Listen to the full band intro, because the song has two intros. The album version starts with a pretty intense piano solo played by Robert Lamb. The first time I heard that version was when I was driving home from Evanston several years ago, after teaching a GRE prep course. I heard Bob Stroud, one of the great Chicago radio DJs, play it as I pulled into a Walgreens, and man, I loved it. I have another particular memory of hearing this song on the radio. If memory serves me right, it was December 2001. Lisa and I were visiting my parents for Christmas. During that trip, we spent a few days in downtown Chicago. Well, one night we took a trip from Chicago down to Bradley, about 60 miles away, to visit my friend and Pie Factory podcast co-host Jim and his family. That was Lisa's first ever time going to the Kankakee area, and, well, uh, the less said about her perspective on that part of the state, well, and mine for that matter, the better. After our visit and being in the Kankakee area for that time, we could not get back to our hotel room fast enough. My memory wants to tell me that I floored it once we got to Interstate 57, but I tend to believe that that's hyperbole for the purpose of telling a story. As we exited the Dan Ryan to get downtown, the radio station we had tuned in decided to play Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is? just as Chicago's stunning night skyline came into view. It was the perfect convergence of sight and sound, one that we talk about to this day. Every time we hear the song, Lisa says, Remember, and before I even let her finish that thought, I say, Yep, I sure do. By the way, in case you're wondering what that voice is saying during the third verse, it's apparently Bob Lamb, and he's saying, People running everywhere, don't know where to go, 
Don't know where I am. Can't see past the next step. Don't have time to think past the last thought. I have no time to look around, just run around, and uh, I couldn't make out the next word. I think it was never. Uh, never think why, and then it kind of trails off. Now, the closing track on side one, Beginnings. I have a pretty significant memory of that song as well. May of 2006. I was getting ready to start my new job in Chicago. It was a weird time, though. Lisa had to stay behind in New Jersey for a year to finish her master's degree, and she would be keeping our Ocean Grove apartment until the end of the summer, so during the summer I would crash with my parents in Joliet and take the train into the city every day. We loaded up my car with my essentials, you know, turntable, guitar, computer, stuff I need to get by every day. It's a 14-hour drive straight through, so I remembered how when... We moved me to New Jersey. I was having a really hard time staying awake by the time we got to the last hour. So this time we split the trip over two days and spent the night in Cleveland making a visit to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame before hitting the road again the next day. The plan was that Lisa would drive out with me and then fly back to New Jersey, which is what happened. But anyway, at the beginning of the trip in New Jersey, Lisa plugged her iPod into my car stereo and queued up beginnings from a best of compilation that she had. How fitting. I'm about to begin our Chicago life. So she plays a song called Beginnings by a band called Chicago. How fitting that the backing vocals repeat the phrase only the beginning at the end of the song. We did that same drive again in April 2007 to move Lisa to Chicago with me. We repeated that same thing, Beginnings, as soon as we got on the road. And not just those two trips either. Five summers in a row, we took a road trip to New Jersey and back with our beagle, Ruthie. Each time on the drive back, Lisa pumped beginnings through the car stereo when we hit the road in New Jersey. It's because of those car trips that the lyrics really speak to me. When I'm with you, it doesn't matter where we are or what we're doing. I'm with you. That's all that matters. Time passes much too quickly when we're together laughing. Oh. Those lyrics hit me hard the first time, though, realizing that Lisa and I were going to be apart for a while. Trust me, if you like your spouse, living apart with occasional visits really sucks. By the way, a tip for guitar players, if you want to play the chords, at least in the beginning of the song, I recommend an acoustic 12-string. What you want to do is uh, use your index finger to bar the higher strings, like the E, the B, the G, and the D, on the 7th fret, and then you form a D major 7th at the 9th fret. Uh, I use my ring finger for that, so it sounds like this. There we go. So, play that along with the uh, open A strings. And then for the next chord, just lose that D major 7th formation. Just lift, off, uh, lift up your ring finger, and then play the A, D, G, B, and E strings the way they are. So it should sound something like... Like that. And you're still barring at that 7th fret, by the way. Uh, I accidentally discovered this one night during an ensemble class at the Old Town School of Folk Music. Uh, none of the chord charts I could find online notated the chords this accurately. Uh, they always went with the easy A major 7th down at the regular part of the guitar, but uh, obviously that's not really the best way to do it. Uh, well, the way that I do it is as accurate as I could personally figure out, but... At least on the record, it sounds like Terry Kath's fingers are sliding from one chord to the other, but the way I play doesn't do a slide. It just kind of goes like this. 
like you don't hear my finger sliding on the strings. You don't hear that. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not really 100% sure what Terry's doing there, but this is what I do. And of course, if I weren't recording, this would sound much better. When I'm with you. Sorry, <laughs> I got a little carried away there. Actually, when I first figured that out, I actually put a capo on the seventh fret and adjusted it so that it only covered those uh, last four strings, which I don't think is uh, the best way to do that. But anyway, I mentioned how those three songs on side one are pretty long. If you know anything about the band Chicago, you're probably familiar with Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is and Beginnings because they were radio hits, and uh, ergo they aren't very long, really. Well, at least you now know. The album-length version of the former is significantly longer with that piano intro, and Beginnings also is much longer on the album. The ending goes on for quite a long time, ending with a very percussive jam that, in my opinion, is très cool. My turntable is manual, so once the side is over, the tone arm doesn't return back to its home position. I have to stand up and do that myself, which is not really a huge issue as long as you are ready to get up and take the uh, stylus off the record when it's over. And if you don't, though, you run the risk of that stylus kind of edging up along the label, which isn't really good for things, or at the very least, you'll have that little inside groove constantly thumping against the, the stylus, which uh, also is not a good idea. But the problem is, when I first played my Chicago Transit Authority vinyl, I was so stunned after hearing Side One. Again, it wasn't the first time I ever heard the album, it was just the first time that I heard it on vinyl. And something about that first time, I was just thinking, man, that album side is just stunning. And I was just kind of mentally paralyzed. Wow. And then suddenly I realized, oh crap, I got to take the needle off the record and, uh, or else I'm going to damage something. <laughs> but good freaking Lord, what a one, two, three punch that was on side one. And then what do you have on side two? Holy crap. Question 67 and 68, another classic. And then listen one of the coolest bass grooves around, but unfortunately also the shortest song on the album. Now, just do exactly what that title tells you. Listen to that groove. Then you have Poem 58. Um, if the volume on your stereo is not nice and loud by this time, then you have no soul, it is official. As I typed out these notes, I really felt sad that I'd have to record this podcast when instead I could have been listening to Poem 58. The way you talk, the things you do, wish I was three killer songs on side one, three more killer songs on side two. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard of the perfect album side. Well, at least in terms of multi-disc albums, Disc 1 of Chicago Transit Authority is the perfect album disc. Now with that second disc, I'm just gonna kind of jump around a bit. There's a great cover of the Spencer Davis group's I'm a Man, although the lyrics aren't much more intelligible on this version than on the original. Some really great jamming on this track, and it's even better when you hear it live. 
On side four, there's a track called Prologue, August 29, 1968, which runs straight into the next track, which is called Someday. And then in parentheses, it says August 29, 1968. That's um, a pretty important and dark day in the history of the city of Chicago. The Democratic National Convention was in town at the now-defunct International Amphitheater on the south side. Now, northeast of that, over by the lake, in Grant Park, there was an anti-war demonstration, with protesters planning to march to the amphitheater. One of the protesters lowered a flag that was flying in the park, and the police responded by beating that protester up and starting a riot. It got to the point that if you were there, period, you were the target of a police beating, including a priest who was pulled off his bike as he was simply trying to get home. He got beaten up too. The protesters who were not yet being beaten started to march up Michigan Avenue toward the Conrad Hilton Hotel where many delegates from the convention were staying. The Chicago police followed the marching crowd and continued with the beatings. You may have heard the rumor that journalists were being beaten up despite press credentials. Well, that is simply untrue. They were not being beat up despite press credentials. They were being beaten up because of their press credentials, as per Mayor Daley's orders. As all this was happening, the protesters famously chanted, The whole world is watching for 17 minutes. And you know why? Because the whole world was watching, thanks to the television cameras present. Prologue, August 29, 1968, was a recording of the chanting. It was nothing more than that. Yet, somehow, producer Jim Gersio got a writer's credit on that track. Uh, is he trying to tell us that he wrote that chant? Some Day, August 29, 1968, is a fast-paced commentary on the state of the world in that day. The chant comes back during that song. Um, interestingly, that chant would again be sampled many years later on the song All the Years, off of Chicago's recorded in 1994, released in 2008 album Stone of Sisyphus. The album's closing track, Liberation, nearly 15 minutes long. It's basically a jam, but damn does it make you feel good that you listen to the album. And I also take Liberation as a congratulations for making it through... Freeform Guitar, the opening track on side three. The one track that prevents Chicago Transit Authority from being a perfect album. Freeform Guitar is a polarizing track. Either you correctly dismiss it as filler garbage, or you say that it's brilliant and revolutionary. Some fans even compare some of the... playing to that of Eddie Van Halen, because Terry Kath's guitar improvisation included the double-tapping style that Eddie was famous for. Uh, no. The title admits that it's freeform, people. Come on. Eddie Van Halen had a plan the whole time. Every single note was planned. And that Terry only did one take tells me that he was just noodling around. Basically, if you haven't heard freeform guitar, imagine seven minutes of Lou Reed's metal machine music but with just a guitar instead of uh, whatever the hell Lou was using. That's freeform guitar. And that is what I call blown perfection. If it hadn't been for that track, Chicago Transit Authority would be a perfect album. And a two-record set at that. Wow. That is hard to do. Now, you may have your arguments for freeform guitar being a good track. Well, you like Revolution 9. Yes, I do like Revolution 9. But the thing is, Revolution 9, again, the performer, that is John Lennon, knew exactly what he was doing. There was a purpose to it, 
It was weird. It was goofy. There was stuff to actually listen for. And (laughs) believe it or not, he did multiple takes of Revolution 9. It wasn't in one take. Freeform guitar, that was just one take. Just one take of just futzing around on a guitar. Well, Bob Lamb got a chance to do his own improvisation on Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is? Yeah, and that only took a little over a minute. It didn't take seven freaking minutes. That is one thing I have to say about the CD reissues of Chicago Transit Authority. They shortened Freeform Guitar by several seconds to make the whole album fit on one CD. So that I applaud the CD people for. But blown perfection, good lord. Maybe you'll like Freeform Guitar, and if that's the case, then you might be in store for a perfect album with Chicago Transit Authority. Give it a listen, see what you think. It's just stunning how brilliant the rest of the album is. Oh, 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 um, I totally forgot the uh, trivia question at the beginning of this segment. What hit rock and roll album released in England in the 60s contains the lyric, I am he as you are he as you are me, and we are all together? Well, some people might reflexively think Magical Mystery Tour, 1967, The Beatles, I Am the Walrus. Well, not really, because the Magical Mystery Tour album was not released in England in the 60s. England wouldn't have it until the 70s. It was released in the U.S. in 1967. But you know what album was released in England? What hit album was released in England in the 60s? Chicago Transit Authority. And yes, the album does indeed contain that line, I am he, as you are he, as you are me, and we are all together. Here you go. From South California Purples, another wonderful song on a truly wonderful album, despite the blown perfection. Wow, such a great album, Chicago Transit Authority. In fact, as soon as I'm done recording this, I'm going to go ahead and give it a listen. Uh, And of course, skip Freeform Guitar. Oh, by the way, um, I think I talked about this in a previous episode, but do yourself a favor. Do not get the 50th anniversary remix of Chicago Transit Authority. It's just terrible. There's definitely a lot of speed fluctuation, a lot of flutter and wow for some reason. And it sounds like somebody threw water on the tape or something. Uh, The only good thing about it is that the vocals sound definitely brighter. But other than that, it's, it's awful. It is horrible. And worst of all, they restored Freeform Guitar to its original length. I mentioned that I've seen Chicago live. I first saw them at Summerfest in Milwaukee in 2012 when Lisa and I went to see the reunited Beach Boys. By the way, when we went to Summerfest, (laughs) it didn't take long to get why everybody says it's much better than Taste of Chicago Definitely better organized, that's for sure. Anyway, Chicago had a free show going on at another venue over at Summerfest. So after the Beach Boys were done, we walked over and watched Chicago for a while. And damn, they put on a great show. There's an outdoor venue about 10 miles north of Chicago called Ravinia. I may have mentioned that before. But uh, Ravinia is a rite of passage if you live in or near Chicago. You'll end up going there for one reason or another. The next time Chicago played Ravinia, I think it was 2013, um, Lisa went with a friend of ours, but I stayed home. Now, when she got back, Lisa raved about the show and told me I need to go with her next time. 
and uh, that next time was summer of 2015. We hopped a metro train up north, and we made a day of it. Lawn seats, we had lunch, and yeah, oh my goodness, a hell of a show. Oh, when they came back in the summer of 2019, you bet we went. And my God, the show was absolutely jam-packed. I mean, it was so crowded. We got lawn again, but we could not set up anywhere where the stage was visible. We heard a couple of Ravinia staffers say that it was the biggest crowd they ever had. People I know who are old enough to have been first-generation fans tell me that the current Chicago shows pale in comparison to the original Chicago, and uh, I don't doubt that. I mean, Terry Kath was a genius, and of course he had Peter Cetera. I still love seeing Chicago's current lineup, though. Go to the band's Wikipedia entry, and their band member timeline looks like a Tokyo subway map, but you're still getting a quality show. All the horns are from the original lineup, except for one. Uh, one of the horn players recently retired from the road to focus on studio recording. And, uh, of course, Robert Lamb, I don't think, ever left the group. Or if he did, he came back. He's still in the group. I believe the current sax player is... Uh, well, if you're a Brian Wilson fan, uh, Chicago's current sax player, I think that's the guy, is the equivalent to Darian Sahanaja, in that while he's not an original member from way back, he's still the real thing. He knows his stuff, and he bends over backwards to keep things real. Now, I only have two complaints about Chicago's live shows. First, you have to sit through their 80s power ballads. I know, those were big hits, but... Good lord, they're so... Bu I do not like power ballads, okay? <laughs> Especially from the 80s. They're so bleh. So usually when they're doing their 80s power ballads, that's when I take time to have a pee break, maybe get some food, check out the merch table. Second, and even more importantly, for some strange reason, they only do the end of Feeling Stronger Every Day. I wish to all get out that they just do the whole song... That build-up in the song is what makes it so powerful. But when they do just the end, it just takes away that energy. Ugh. Now, Danny Serafin, who's uh, Chicago's original drummer, he started a band called California Transit Authority, and they do some Chicago songs in their sets. From what I'm told, they're definitely worth checking out if you're in L.A. But uh, because of those three times I've seen Chicago live each in the summer, to me, the band Chicago and especially the Chicago Transit Authority album, is about summer. And I have some good stuff coming up this summer, including a trip to California that I just can't wait for. And I'll be taking a break from this podcast. But during that break, I'll be working on a few other projects that I'll be sure to tell you about. Uh, not that I necessarily think you'll be interested in those projects, or you might be, but basically <laughs> for my own vanity. Oh, and uh, though I did compose and perform the opening, closing, and transitional music in this podcast, there are some sounds in music that are not mine. Those sounds in music, which remain the property of their respective copyright holders, were used for the purpose of commentary and review, and copyright infringement is not intended. I thank, as usual, my amazing wife Lisa for her support and encouragement, and for causing the first segment of this episode to happen in the first place. And I thank all of you for listening. If you would like to reach out to me or otherwise keep up with Autobiography of a Schnook during my hiatus, and uh, even after my hiatus, there are several ways you can do that. My email address is autobio at schnookpodcast.com. 
The website for this podcast, which includes each episode's online bibliography, is schnookpodcast.com. And I sincerely apologize, by the way, for being terrible at maintaining the online bibliographies. I'm on Facebook. Just type Autobiography of a Schnook in Facebook's search engine, or go straight to facebook.com slash schnookpodcast. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at schnookpodcast. And what more can I say other than uh, the good goes around, my friends, and uh, I definitely hope you experience that good over the summer. All the best. Oh, by the way, people, I just want it to be known, the name of Chicago's second album is not Chicago 2. It is simply called Chicago. I don't know why everybody wants to call it Chicago 2, just because it's their second album. Technically, it's Chicago's first album, because the previous album, they were Chicago Transit Authority. I mean, yeah, the next album was called Chicago 3, but... I mean, still, the Beatles self-titled album, you don't call it Beatles 8, do you? I mean, there's in America, there was Beatles 6, but you don't call Beatles 65 Beatles 5. No, you call it Beatles 65. I mean, come on, people. And what's with this Led Zeppelin 4 crap? First of all, it's an overrated album. Why are we calling it Led Zeppelin 4 if there's no 4 in the title? Just, it's not, it's not even titled. It's self-titled. It's their second self-titled album. Why don't you just call it Led Zeppelin's fourth album? And be done with it. But no, you gotta call it Led Zeppelin 4, which doesn't exist. And I, what is wrong with you people? Read the freaking album cover. You know what it says.